it's slightly what drew me to MS, but it's at the same time what makes it, oh, it keeps it interesting anyway, but it, it does make it, I think people, I think trainees look at it and go, oh my God, look at all these drugs. I can't possibly, you know, learn all these drugs. And I think it is very difficult when you're not doing it all the time. Um, but you just, once you're immersed in the world, it becomes your world and that's what you get used to and what you know. That was Kate Petherham, consultant neurologist at Sunderland Royal Hospital, who moonlights as an ABN quality committee member, medical advisor to the MS Society, and in her spare time she wrangles a cat, dog, two sons and an orthopaedic surgeon in Northumberland. This is Tease Neuro, where we try to make neurology approachable, with a diverse range of guests with different neurological expertise. I'm Lou Wiblin, neurologist at James Cook Hospital in Middlesbrough, and this episode I'm speaking to Dr Kate Petherham on multiple sclerosis. So, hi, Dr. Petherham. Hi, Lou. Nice to, nice to see you and speak to you today. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, before we start, what would you like me to call you? Kate, please. I can call you Kate. <laughs> I would call you I Brigadier. I still look over my shoulder. <laughs> That'll, no, definitely not that. Just Professor, Kate, fine. Professor Petherham has a nice ring. Dr. P, sometimes. Right. So today's uh, podcast, today's talk is going to be on multiple sclerosis. And I think that's not your first rodeo talking about MS. Nope. So, so yeah, so we've got quite a, a varied range of uh, backgrounds and abilities and we have different listeners. So if we start at the real fundamentals, what is multiple sclerosis? So uh, I guess it's probably, I'll give you my kind of patient spiel in a way, because that's actually how I think about it. So um, multiple sclerosis is a, is a chronic autoimmune condition, which affects the central nervous system. So commonly affecting um, brain, spinal cord and optic nerve. And, uh, you know, it is, I'd have to say when I became a neurologist, I never expected to become an immunologist and I don't profess to be an immunologist. So there obviously is quite a complicated immunological pathophysiological process behind MS, but essentially um, you get activation in the early stages of MS, you get kind of activation of peripheral um, lymphocytes in the peripheral uh, bloodstream. They then cross over into the blood brain barrier and cause uh, a kind of milieu of, of inflammatory activity, which affects and damages the myelin. Uh, which surrounds the, the the axons in the central nervous system, and that where that depending on where that damage occurs, you then get a clinical syndrome or uh, kind of symptoms or relapse. Um, and then the body does quite a good job at repairing itself, but not a perfect job. And so then you and then you may have gaps of many years between attacks, or you may have very frequent attacks. Um, and then. Uh, also and you've probably got once you've got damage to the central nervous system there's what we really think now is that there's an element of damage and progression right from the beginning of the disease and um, although that's a little bit controversial but in the background you've got a kind of it sets off um so you get more brain atrophy you get a, probably a slight progression um and yeah so that's the kind of basics of what ms is i guess we wanted to talk a little bit about diagnosis of ms as well yeah yeah, so um, how do you go about giving somebody a diagnosis? How do you classify someone? 
when they're in the process of diagnosis? So I guess, well, you want to make sure you've got the diagnosis right first, I suppose. So um, most of you probably would have heard of a clinically isolated syndrome. So that's the first uh, clinical episode suggestive multiple sclerosis. Um, so by definition, it has to be clinically apparent. Uh, and so a clinically, ep clinically apparent episode that either you can glean from the patient's history or is and preferably is then demonstrable by clinical signs. Um, and these classically evolve over days and then last according to def you know strict definition have to last at least 24 hours and then usually recover of their own accord um and you know, for research purposes uh, have to be um out with any infection or, or rise in temperature um, and common sites for having a clinically isolated syndrome so typical uh, clinically isolated syndromes would be optic affecting the optic nerve so with an optic neuritis or affecting the spinal cord, so you might get a transverse myelitis, uh, or affecting the brainstem, so you may get a, a, an episode of double vision or an eye movement disorder, or an episode of vertigo. Uh, or you can have people actually have fairly subtle sensory disturbance affecting one part of the body. I think people can tie themselves in knots with people presenting with you know, intermittent fleeting sensory symptoms which occur in different parts of the body. And for me, that is not a red flag for MS. And MS sensory relapse is, like I said, usually evolves over kind of hours to days. Sometimes, obviously, the patient has to notice it at some point. So it can appear to come on quite suddenly or people wake up in the morning with it. Um, but that sensory, that sensory disturbance is generally persistent and then either remains or improves. So it's not something that comes and goes particularly. Um, so once you've got somebody with one of those clinically isolated syndromes, you then want to know, well, is this going to be just isolated or is this going to go on and become MS? And what's the risk of having further attacks, further damage to the nervous system? And really, I suppose, particularly currently, what we want to know is, should we be treating it and should we be giving them disease-modifying treatment? Um, so you'll probably be aware that there are lots of different or there's been an evolution of the diagnostic criteria for MS. But the essential premise stays the same, that we need evidence of um, dissemination of, in space and time. So you need evidence of damage to the nervous system happening in more than one place um, and at one, more than one time point. Um, the only change I suppose there's been to the 2017 diagnostic criteria is that we can now use biomarker in terms of CSF oligoclonal bands um, in, in place of a dissemination in time. So I can go on to explain a little bit more about that. I think, um, I think what you described there about the fleeting sensory symptoms is really helpful because when somebody has a clinically isolated syndrome, and then obviously they're hypervigilant for new symptoms. Um, yeah. The fact that there needs to be some, they need to be sustained, need to be in one part of the body, and it needs to be evolving over hours does help because you, the MS team, the MS nurses are inundated with phone calls about, you know, I had a tingle yeah. here, a tingle there just for a second. I'm really concerned. I want to scan. So I think that's yeah, yeah. really helpful. 
and it is it's important as well differentiating because I mean I I get that a lot I speak to patients you know especially recently having speak spoken to a lot of patients over their phone and and even patients you know or patients with MS are, are just as likely or perhaps probably more likely to have functional symptoms or, or you know symptoms and I often explain to them look we all get twitches and twinges occasionally we all get you know very fleeting sensory symptoms and if that does just come and go, if it's very fleeting, that does not necessarily mean that you're having a relapse or that this is necessarily connected to your MS. Um, and it's also important when we're triaging, you know, referrals, isn't it? I think particularly in this current situation mm. where we can't see or scan absolutely everybody. And so I think it's reassuring to say to patients or, or GPs, look, actually, this doesn't sound typical for MS and actually and you can get yourself into real bother by scanning people who don't have typical symptoms because without typical symptoms you can't make the diagnosis of MS even if there were you know even if there were changes on an MRI scan which looked kind of suspicious or demyelinating. I suppose that neatly takes us into the really quite controversial diagnosis or label of a radiologically isolated syndrome. Um, yeah yeah, so I mean, it's a thought issue, and we see it all the time, and we you know, countlessly get, um, you know, referred patients from care, from stroke or from um, ENT. Now, to be to be honest, often when they're referred from stroke or ENT, they probably do have a defining clinical episode. Um, but I suppose maybe more people that have been scanned for headaches, for example, um, that have changes on their scan which look, you know, typically demyelinating, but you cannot, you know, despite asking, you know all the questions about whether they've ever had a sensory episode which could be defining or whether they've had a, a period of uh, you know loss of vision in one eye which has gone you know come and then gone away um gone away again um so with, without that without a, a defining clinical episode you, you can't make the diagnosis of ms um, it's and it remains a radiologically isolated syndrome and it, it's a difficult thing to manage and you know i have had a few patients referred to me with a radiologically isolated syndrome and if you follow them long enough often they do then develop a, um, a, a first clinical episode and you can then make the diagnosis of MS but not everybody does um, and there's lots of kind of controversy um, about whether we should be treating it and the main you know main consensus particularly in the well in the UK you, you wouldn't be able to um, but the main consensus is that we should, probably shouldn't be treating it at the moment but it's actually it's a big area for kind of debate and research mm. uh, particularly when you see people accumulating lesions over time that's hard um so i have to say i've been one to find a clinic or you know your you perhaps threshold for a clinic for a clinical episode perhaps lowers a little bit um but you do run into the danger of over treating people then um, but i found I that very difficult when i did research and obviously there were lots of different studies for different things and some people had mri scans um, just as part of the research study. And in, in a good number, actually, we found demyelinating yeah. lesions. And yeah. Well, I think there's a, there's a um, and I might be quoting the numbers wrong here, but there was a Swedish post-mortem study showing that about, you know, and this was just in a, in a kind of non-selected population, but about 1%. So quite a high proportion of patients had, you know, pathological demyelination on, post-mortem but mm. didn't have any clinical signs so I mean and then way that's reassuring that actually just because just because you do have radiological evidence doesn't mean that you're definitely going to go on to develop 
either kind of clinically definite relapse or kind of evidence of progression or anything like that um but it, it is a, it is a difficult i think a difficult one to deal with with the patients um and particularly if someone's already done a lumbar puncture and they've got all the clonal bands uh. that really <laughs> that really ups the ante a little bit um and i've had that before and that's hard uh so yeah and what I'll do for um, when we convert this into a podcast, I'll attach a link for the McDonald criteria. Um, when I teach the medical students, I, I, I had a, a group of medical students last year when I was still a reg. And I don't know why, but I had a group that just found it impossible to grasp how you would diagnose multiple sclerosis and you know dissemination time and space and i kept saying and i'm like what what do you mean what do you mean i called it the doctor who disease (laughs) because doctor who's um tardis travels both in time and in space and in space very good i like that and they did like that but then but then the feedback said one one of them said i was a glorious (laughs) nerd (laughs) (laughs) you you did have to explain that to me leo it has to be said i think (laughs) I wouldn't have necessarily got that without explaining that. That's because but you're yeah, a I'm, proper grown-up and you're not a nerd. <laughs> so. No, no. Um, but yeah, so I don't know if it helps to go into that briefly for the, for the, more, junior, for the more junior listeners. But um, So you do need dissemination in space, which you really need to get, well, which you can either get clinically, so two episodes in two different places at different times. So perhaps an optic neuritis one year and a transverse myelitis the next year. That's a definite clinical diagnosis of MS. You don't need anything else. Um, but I guess what what kind of us MS specialists want is really to be able to treat people as early as possible or as early as appropriate. Um, and so really we want to be able to diagnose people before they have that second event. And so we use MRI imaging as probably the most useful tool in our kind of armory. So, uh, an M- so you can all you can diagnose MS on one clinical episode with one scan, as long as you do gadolinium on that scan. So if you give somebody gadolinium and you've got some enhancing lesions and some not enhancing lesions in a clinical episode, then there's your diagnosis. Okay. If you if you don't have GAD enhancing lesions or you didn't give GAD or you can't give GAD for whatever reason, then you can still make a diagnosis after a first clinical event. So you've one clinical event, an MRI scan that looks like MS, and then you do a lumbar puncture. And then if you've got positive clonal bands in the CSF and not in the serum, then there's your diagnosis. Just to inject um, a little bit of controversy because we love controversy and we love, we love yep. angry emails and angry tweets. I thrive on them. Yep. Good. What, what you, <laughs> evoked potentials, Kate. How yep. do you feel about evoked potentials? So I think they're useful when there's any kind of, I guess when you're trying to corroborate a previous clinical event, I find them quite useful. They're not part of the diagnostic criteria at the moment. So you can't use them on their own to, to make the diagnosis. But I, you know, I do find them, I, I do do them. Um but yeah, that you can't use them for the diagnostic criteria. But that is controversial. And I think it's part of the, you know, they do make a comment. I think there was probably a lot of debates when they were making, uh, when they were producing the diagnostic criteria. And I suspect a lot of people did want them to be part of the criteria, um, but obviously not enough. Do you think that's you the know? next, the next change in the criteria? Possibly, yeah. 
I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, the question is whether it's really necessary. Do, do we need them to add more specificity and sensitivity? I think the specificity and sensitivity are quite high already. So, um, yeah, that, I guess the risk is, is that you then start bringing in mimics and things, yeah. potentially. And obviously we've talked about, you know, having typical changes on a scan and yep. uh, can't really uh, share screen properly during this uh, stream. But what we can do is, again, we can link some public domain scans. Do you mind just talking through some of the, the basic changes you would expect to see in demyelination from multiple sclerosis? And then maybe we can maybe look at things that you would expect less that would make you suspect that you're seeing a mimic. Yeah. So there are four in the diagnostic criteria, and this is you know true to life. You get kind of there are four classical areas where you get um, high T2 signals. So basically, looking at your T2 weighted MRI scan, and you get white blobs is the easiest way to look at it, um, or on your flare. Sometimes it's easier to see on flare. So periventricular, I guess, is the classical one. And if you're looking at sagittal views, you sometimes see these classical Dawson's fingers. So um, lesions coming out from the ventricles so that's one of your classical areas um posterior fossa so brainstem and cerebellum are common um common uh, sites for demyelination or juxtacortically so not actually although cortical lesions are now part of the diagnostic criteria these are lesions which just kind of abut the cortex so sitting next to the cortex um and then spinal cord lesions are common as well um, and spinal cord lesions so you don't have to scan the spinal cord as part of the diagnostic criteria um, and I have to say I guess you, so you wouldn't need to scan it for a diagnosis I have to say I more and more do um, because it's quite useful prognostically uh, so they're the main kind of uh, and I guess so so if you had somebody so you really want to see at least, well, for the diagnostic criteria, you need at least one lesion in two out of those four regions to make a diagnosis of MS. Um, and, I, you know, I do have patients, and very rarely, but I do have patients who maybe just have spinal cord lesions and the brain looks completely normal, but they've got, you know, everything else points towards MS. So I have made the diagnosis of MS with effectively a normal MRI brain, but with, but with an abnormal spinal MRI. That's and, and but I'll take those kind of cases to the MDT so I'm not being too rogue about it um but I guess the kind of things that would make you think of mimic so a completely normal MRI brain having just said that if it's a completely normal MRI brain you want to think of other things uh, so a patient presenting with an optic neuritis with a normal brain scan you want to think of um, NMO spectrum disorders so neuromyelitis optica or uh, or anti-mog and or if you've got kind of very kind of less well-defined brainstem lesions that can often be a, a pointer towards NMO or of course if you've got a longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis then that points you as well towards um, NMO or MOG. Um, I guess we've talked a little bit about vote potentials and looking at the optic nerve because sometimes the the nature of the optic neuritis or the appearance of the optic nerves on the scan can point you towards a different a diagnosis. So in MS, you tend to get quite short segment optic. If you're going to see any enhancement or high signal on the optic nerves, it tends to be quite short 
segment and anterior in MS, whereas an extensively, you know, longitudinally extensive optic neuritis would point you more towards um, NMO or MOG, or potentially sarcoid, which is the other mimic that people always worry about. So we an optic sarcoid. Say that again. We all fear sarcoid. Yeah, I have to say, I know, and you put it up on the questions and I was like, oh, yeah, I can't, I can't remember the last time I saw anybody with sarcoid unless I've got them, unless they're all on DMTs for MS, of course. I have to um, say, for, for a podcast about MS, I got more questions about sarcoid. All right. Well, I'm not a sarcoid expert. But no, anyway. I know. <laughs> um, I get, so the things that would point you towards sarcoid was a severe, um, a, perhaps a more gradual onset in, of an optic neuritis. Uh, a more severe so and less visual recovery tend to be they can be steroid responsive but then whereas with MS you know generally an optic neuritis in MS will get you know you'll get sometimes the visual acuity becomes bad but usually it recovers and they recover really quite good um, visual acuity but less so with with sarcoid and you know if you do the lumbar puncture you might end up with a more hypercellular CSF and a higher protein traditionally a lower glucose um, you can have bands in sarcoid, but not also. I mean, it is difficult sometimes. Um, and I guess with sarcoid, and we're talking about MRI scans, so with sarcoid, you might get a more confluent kind of meningeal enhancement than the discrete kind of ventricular and, um, you know, posterior fossa cortical lesions having said that of course you'll always you know i was looking this up earlier you've got a case study of of, of sarcoid presenting you know with an, an mri scan that looks like ms so there are always going to be exceptions to that to every rule basically um, but they're the kind of pointers that i look out for so an optic neuritis with poor visual recovery is a red flag for ms uh, and would always make me think of um of an mog or sarcoid I guess the other thing which we haven't mentioned is bilateral optic neuritis as a red flag. And so anybody presenting with bilateral optic neuritis at the same time, I, you know, I'd always consider NMO or MOG um, first, unless their scan looks completely like MS. But I, I have got, you know, I've got a patient who was treated for 15 years with MS and she's got anti-MOG disease and you know, it's kind of easy in hindsight, but it wasn't probably even invented when she was, you know, diagnosed with MS. So things are changing. I think in MS, things change very fast. I mean, we're still using the they same do. drug that was released in 1968. So, <laughs> <laughs> What, you mean steroids? Levodopa. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, you mean Parkinson's, yeah, yeah. yeah we've got, I know, I kind of, it's slightly what drew me to MS, but it's at the same time what makes it, oh, it keeps it interesting anyway, but it, it does make it, I think people, I think trainees look at it and go, oh my God, look at all these drugs. I can't possibly, you know, learn all these drugs. And I think it is very difficult when you're not doing it all the time. Um, but you, you just, once you're immersed in the world, it becomes your world and that's what you get used to and what you know. But that's surely a positive as well. You know, you, you go home yeah. on Friday evening and you're not on call at the weekend and on Monday morning, there's a new drug available for you to use. Well, exactly. Exactly. And that's fantastic. You, yeah, you, you look at your Twitch and you go, oh, they've approved that. Excellent. I'll wait for the phone to ring off the hook um, on Monday morning because it had been approved in, you know, Europe and America, but not nice approved, which is always this struggle. I think that comes later. But that segues beautifully yes, into, yeah. so we've made a positive diagnosis of, say, so CIS, first of all. Yeah. What, are, what are our options? So you're talking about a CIS that's got diagnosed with MS. So 
So, a, or a pure CIS. Well, let's well let's say first of all you've diagnosed a CIS. Yeah. What what are your options? So, a pure CIS. So you're talking about a person with a, a clinically a clinically isolated syndrome with no MRI change. Well, MRI. So. You, not enough to give a diagnosis of McDonald's 17 criteria, mm -hmm. I would not treat them with a DMT. And the algorithm would support that. And I think most people would not treat a clinically isolated syndrome for which you didn't have a diagnosis of MS. Um, but I would say that probably those cases are relatively few and far between. So if you look hard enough, um, wait long enough well you don't have to wait that long usually but you will be able to make a diagnosis of ms so a clinically isolated syndrome which you do so you've either got a new lesion or gadolinium enhancing lesion and you've got positive or you've got positive oligoclonal bands you can treat with first line injectables so what do you want to know what you can treat with or what you should treat with well, I suppose we can say this is what, where we get into them. What can you treat with, but what should what should you treat with on the Kate criteria? Okay, we've come so this, for the this Kate is where criteria. you get into the murky world, the murky world of kind of algorithms and nice approvals and everything. So you so and I so this comes into you know how do you decide what treatment to give anybody, and it's going to depend on a, on a whole host of factors. It'll depend on what the clinically isolated syndrome was. So was it, um, you know, incredibly disabling? Was it a kind of disabling brainstem event? Or was it an optic neuritis from which somebody's made complete recovery from? Um, is the patient, you know, 20 uh, with, you know, a nasty looking scan? Or are they 50 with not very many lesions and, you know, and perhaps arguably less to lose? Um, so there are lots and lots of factors. So I would probably take patient factors, you take clinical factors and you take MRI factors. And, you know, I guess the bio, um, I guess not so much biomarkers because you've already got your, your bands. So you know, we'll take an example. If I had a 24 year old man who presented with an opt, so a transverse myelitis, which took him out as took him off his feet but he perhaps made a good improvement with steroids um, and he's got in fact it wouldn't really matter so many how many lesions but say he's got you know 10 lesions on his MRI brain um, but he has only had one attack and you've only managed to make the diagnosis because he's done lumbar puncture I would think he's got a lot to lose if he has another attack and, and a spinal cord lesion is a fairly uh, poor prognostic factor and he's male, which is another poor prognostic factor. So I would treat that person fairly. I would want to treat that patient with a highly effective medication. So the options in that situation, one attack with activity, the options are interferons. So the interferons and compaxone, which is the first line injectables, or oculizumab, basically. Those are your options. Um, it used to, so we could get really complicated. There used to be the option of alemtuzumab, um, but last year the license was changed, and we can talk about this a bit more if we've got time, but the licensing was changed for alemtuzumab um, because of some safety concerns, so now you have to require highly active MS. So, so yeah, I would tend to... So I, I kind of was brought up in the Newcastle um, way of treating MS, which is fairly... 
I don't like the term aggressive, but you know what I mean when I say it, kind of, you know, highly active treatment from the get-go. And so I would give, I would probably offer, offer you offer everything because you have to offer everything. Patient charter says that. Um, but I would probably encourage somebody to go with a highly effective medication where I think it's, where there are prog bad prognostic factors. Um, so yeah, does that kind of, kind of answer that question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I mean, what, what I think what we both wanted to avoid during this was just a list of medicines. I think that's what yeah. we, we don't want to do. But I think, um, and I think we obviously shout out for the MS Decisions Aid, which is the best yes. thing since sliced bread. Yes, um, definitely. Go compare for, I always tell my patients, it's like go compare for MS drugs. So I'll open that with them in the, in the clinic room, although I discovered the other day you can only choose three drugs, which is a bit frustrating. But anyway, by the by. So guys in the um, in the stream, if you haven't seen this before, obviously the registrar will have used it a lot, but for the SHOs that haven't used it, if you look up uh, on the MS Trust, the um, MS Decisions Aid, and that's quite a nice way of learning about the drugs and comparing the drugs. Yeah. So in a, in a, in a different situation, so just say you have someone with fairly newly diagnosed MS um, and they... I don't know, let's say they're on, they're on injectables, maybe they're quite nervous, the scan didn't look too bad, and then they have two relapses in quite quick succession with a lot of change on their surveillance scan. How would, maybe say, say it's uh, the next person in clinic, a 30-year-old woman, for example. How would, yeah. you, how would you go about managing that and discussing that with, with her? So you've, you've opened up the options massively now. So you've now got, you've got someone that's tried a first line disease modifying therapy and has, has got activity on that. So in form of clinical and radiological activity. So now you've got highly active, um, that's defined as highly active MS. So now you've kind of, you've got the whole remit of, of treatments to choose from. Um, so you could do a sideways step to one of the orals, which um, one of the kind of first line orals, which I, probably wouldn't do um, or you can escalate treatment and then when you're talking about escalating treatment you uh, I think in that clinical I have to I have to, have to think about it as well I have to kind of go back to the algorithm but with that you can um, two relapses in a year and new radical activity you could almost give anything um, I would so and you've chosen very cleverly chosen a 30 year old woman um, who perhaps hasn't had a family yet and, and this is also perhaps the time to bring in different theories of induction versus um, kind of non-induction ther therapies. So uh, for those unfamiliar, induction therapies are ones where you perhaps give some quite significant immunosuppression um, in, a, in a form of a couple of courses, and then the patient doesn't require ongoing immunotherapy. So it's very attractive for young, it's always been attractive for kind of young people but particularly young women because after a period of six months after their second lot of treatment they don't require any further treatment and they can get pregnant well they can we say it's safe to become pregnant um so the two options there would kind of be alemtuzumab which is um an anti-cd52 which renders you really quite lymphopenic b, b cells and t cells are depleted uh, it's given as an infusion every every day for five days, one year, and then the same, and then three days the next year. Or there's the option of an oral form, uh, well not oral form, but an oral drug called cladribine, 
which is given similarly in two courses, but that's tablets, so that's quite attractive for some people. Um, possibly slightly less effective if you're going to put it. I know there's there's some people that disagree with me on that one, but probably slightly lower down on the efficacy scale than alumtuzumab. Um, and I probably, we maybe don't have time to go into all the ins and outs, but obviously there are lots of concerns with both those drugs at the moment because of COVID and the fact that it renders you very immunocompromised. And ironically, the people I've been talking about that to now, because we're recommending people would shield after taking those medications, um, that people actually don't want to shield now. People are sick of being inside. People want to get out and about. So, so yeah, that's, that's a tricky situation at the moment. But, you know, I think for, for young women who perhaps, you know, and you don't forget that these, when we're seeing these young people, if we're giving them a drug like, so the other options would be things like Fingolimod, which is an oral medication which sequesters lymph lymphocytes in the lymph nodes um so it doesn't let them get into the brain um but you're talking about putting someone in their 30s on a lifelong or potentially you know not lifelong but a, a drug which they're going to be on for 10 15 years um and you know i do have some concerns about the ongoing kind of immunosuppression qualities of some of the drugs um the one we haven't talked about yet is oclizumab, which is another infusible medication uh, given every six months. It's an anti-B cell medication and, uh, um, and, and that's another very attractive option. Pregnancy is a bit of an issue because the official guidance is that you have to be 12 months post-treatment uh, in order to kind of, you know, be safe to conceive. Although I have to say that's a bit cautious and I... I mean, I'm not sure I should say this publicly, but I, I kind of say, look, if you got pregnant just before your six months, I wouldn't be too upset about it. The editing is an option, Dr. Pedler. Yeah. <laughs> and also, sorry, we haven't also, I didn't want this to make a list of drugs, but you did ask what the options were. So there's also natalizumab, of course, Tysabri, which is um, licensed as a four weekly treatment um, in, um, intravenous infusion. Um, and actually, uh, whilst that used to be contraindicated in pregnancy and we can go on to talk about I mean, I've covered a lot of it but pregnancy and, and breastfeeding actually I've got at least two Tysabri babies well not me personally but um, patients who have had continued Tysabri during pregnancy and that is part of the licensing now if there's a you know if it's um, the risk benefit is in favor of that. I have to say so, even, yeah, there, even, yeah even yeah. I have seen you know with my levodopa I've seen, I think, four or five babies in, main, in the RVI born on Tysabri. And I think other yeah, than yeah. some thyroid monitoring, I think the, it's increasing evidence that you know, the risks are pretty low to baby. The risks are pretty low. So it's, it's, it's um, blood discrases in the newborn that they just have to be monitored for. Um, but yeah and, and I think I mean I, the patients I've had have actually just continued at a normal dose but there's some suggestion that you've extended interval dosing throughout pregnancy and then have the last dose at 34 weeks and then you'd give it kind of immediately postpartum um, I, I think of the drugs as being if you think about them in terms of the molecule size that gives you an idea of perhaps how safe they are in pregnancy because a large molecule which you have to give intravenously is unlikely to cross the placenta um, so we worry about the orals, we worry about Tecfidera, Terafidunamide, Fungolamide, they are contraindicated in pregnancy, but actually the 
the glutirumab uh, acetate and interferons pro probably are safe and as is natalizumab. The concern about oclizumab is really because of the lymphopenia and whether that's got any effect on the pregnancy, but it probably it probably is safe. I mean, you wouldn't give it to somebody who was pregnant, but and it's got a short half-life, so the drug kind of dis the actual drug um, uh, dissipates quickly. Really nice so way we, I th to think, go about thinking about it, the injectables yeah, as opposed to the orals. That's really helpful. And it's the same with breastfeeding as well. So um, similarly, a large molecule is unlikely to get into breast milk it does apparently amtuzumab does get into breast milk but probably at not concentrations that's actually going to cause that much harm to the baby um so yeah so that's the kind of i do i, I do like thinking about it that way and i think I, I, in a lot of ways multiple sclerosis and maybe epilepsy they're, they're almost well in neurology fairly unique conditions aren't they because all of our other drugs you know, we have a blanket, you know, oh, no, no, not safe in pregnancy. Nothing is safe in pregnancy. But by necessity, you've all become oh, maternal yeah. medical specialists because that is, yeah, yeah. that's your caseload. Exactly. And I think you're, you're absolutely, you've hit the nail on the head. And I think things have changed massively since, you know, um, I've got a slide on this somewhere, you know, since the 1980s when we, we had no disease modifying therapies, but probably women with MS were encouraged not to have babies because of, you know, because of the risk to them and, you know, risk to the child whatever um, and then you moved into the kind of area of the first line injectables where there was understanding concern and people worried about it but now I think we've become a there's a lot more about maternal choice um, about people wanting to you know and us you know the medical community perhaps there are more women in it um, but being more kind of <laughs> but you know just being more aware of, of how important it is you know that like you say that's our kind of you know, I think it's really important. That's our patient group, and if we can't advocate for them and 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 keep them well during a, a really important part of their life, then then shame on us. Yeah, I have to say, I went to a, an MS uh, talk. Well, wasn't that long ago? I think Dr. Nightingale was there as well, and um, <laughs> slightly surprised that the speaker said, you know, oh well, you know. And in terms of, you know, I'm, I'm always a bit unsure about these medications in pregnancy, but, you know, I always advise that women can always adopt. <laughs> oh, my God. What? Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That person should not have been talking about MS, but anyway. Probably not. Probably not. Um, I think the, the kind of gasp that went around the room kind of suggested yeah. that that was not modern practice. <laughs> <laughs> not, a very, not a very modern approach, is it? Anyway. No. So I mean it's it's very positive, and a lot of the a lot of the drugs now obviously you've got highly effective medications, and they're used, you know, in almost I don't want to say you know in in a group where usually people are denied treatment, you know, women who are of childbearing age. But I suppose you can't really talk about all of these new medications and new developments without talking about side effects and risks. Yeah. Um, and I suppose the elephant in the room with a lot of, well, with some treatments with, in multiple sclerosis is, is PML. Yeah. So PML, so yeah, so progressive multifocal leukencephalopathy, uh, which is, uh, I think the difficult thing about it is that when it first presents, it can look a bit like an MS relapse. So you do have to be quite hypervigilant for it. And it's why we do monitoring scans, <clears throat> looking out for that. So there are um, drugs which, I guess the drug which has the highest risk of PML is, is natalizumab or tisabri. So, and that risk is defined by the uh, by some by your kind of JC virus titer. 
So JC virus is a, is a virus a bit like EBV that about 50% of the population carry and it doesn't usually cause any bother and it only really causes bother if your brain is immunocompromised. I guess if you're every everything's immunocompromised then but it's particularly the brain and the reason why um Tysabri is a problem is because it selectively immunocompromises the brain um so if this virus kind of gets in and it, it can cause pml so we can stratify people's risk by checking their jc virus status and if they're jc virus negative then their risk of PML is not nothing, but it's pretty low. It's about one in ten thousand. Um, but then, depending on how long you, if you do decide to go on it, or you, or you become positive while you're on it, um, your risk increases the longer that you're on the Tysabri, and the higher your JC virus titer is. So um, once people get a titer above one point five, we start getting a little bit twitchy, and I have to say, most of my patients who are high JC on natalizumab have switched to an alternative um but you know even people with a high jc if if they've got very active disease then tysabri is such a good drug you wouldn't necessarily deny it to them but you might give it to them as a look we're just going to give it for a year get control of your disease and then switch you to something else um and so i've started natalizumab without knowing somebody's jc just because particularly at the moment in the current situation, because it's the most effective medication and the safest in the current COVID situation, I think. Um, so that's Tysabri. So if you've got, the other thing is monitoring scans, a bit of a bugbear for me at the moment, but if you, um, but if you have, do stay on with a high JC, the recommendation is that you have an MRI scan every four months to check for asymptomatic PML. Um, because if you find it early enough, if you stop the drug, then people can do recover from, from PML. But if you don't, it's potentially fatal, as you know. So it's a, it's a really important thing to pick up early if you can. So the other drugs that have a slight PML signal are Fingolimod, handful of cases. Um, dimethyl fumarates, handful of cases, uh, so why we get twitched about lymphopenia on dimethyl fumarate. Um, bit of carryover for oclizumab, but not that much signal in monotherapy or people not with previous immunosuppression. Um, but there are, you know, there are cases of PML and rituximab, so I suspect it may come. So yeah, it's, it's 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 one of the kind of it's one of the scary side effects which we which we worry about. Um, I'm lucky not not to have actually had a case, but I've had a few scares. And uh, are there any other side effects or risks that keep you awake, or is that the main one? <laughs> so <laughs> there's one particular patient that keeps me awake. No, um, so alamtuzumab, I guess, is the the other. Um, the biggie in terms of side effects not so much the ones that have actually caused the EMA to restrict its license which was concern about some cerebral and cardiovascular side effects uh, so stroke and and coronary events in young people which we haven't seen very much in the UK and we think mainly came from the states but the autoimmune side effects uh, are important to be aware of so 30 to 40% of people treated with alamtuzumab will end up with an autoimmune thyroid condition. 
either over or active and that's common. I've got lots of patients with Graves post alemtuzumab. Usually it's manageable in conjunction with the endocrinologist, but you know, it does it does involve carbimazole and you know then thyroxine and back and forth often the thyroid function goes up and down and it, it, it can be tricky to treat but it is treatable and most people are glad that they've had the alimtuzumab and the ms is under control despite the thyroid dysfunction um other autoimmune condi- uh, conditions which you can get with alimtuzumab are uh, itp uh, so obviously not one to miss and then good pastures rarely but importantly, and there have been other rarer autoimmune conditions. My, not heart sink, she's lovely, but um, she developed myasthenian gravis um, post-alimtuzumab. Now, you can't say 100%, it was definitely the alimtuzumab that caused it, um, but you have to wonder whether it, she's either very unlike you know there is there is not a, a strong association between ms although and myasthenia although they are both autoimmune conditions they don't commonly occur together um is there any literature on other cases or there's i think one other case so i wrote mine up and presented it at ectrims but well as a poster and i think there's one other case of myasthenia post alimtuzumab so it's rare it's really rare um, but but I think <laughs> difficult to recognise because I, I always put her kind of double vision down to MS. Oh. You know she's a bit weaker. She's got you know she was you know she's one of these stoical patients. Oh yeah, my arms feel a bit weaker and I'm a bit double vision. And I'm like, oh, well, it's probably your MS. And then I saw her and I was like, oh, that's not your MS. <laughs> oh, she kind of came in like toes like this. I was like, okay, yeah, gonna send those antibodies. But, uh, yeah so that so yeah autoimmune you have to be a very alert to autoimmune conditions with uh, alimtuzumab and i guess infections with fingolimod herpes infections um i know there was a i think a case you don't want to give them steroids for a relapse before you've excluded infection so uh, that would be my kind of take home for the shos particularly um so if you've got yeah if you've got a patient on DMT you want to be very careful to exclude infection um, before assuming it's a relapse and giving steroids and I, th- I think there are there are two avenues that I'm kind of I feel I'm, I'm poised between yeah um, after that which is choose the easy one <laughs> okay <laughs> it's late no I'm going okay, no, I'm okay. joking give me the hard one then <laughs> you want the hard one okay no no roll your, roll your d20 <laughs> um yeah, so you mentioned a little bit that you know you've had folk on Tysabri, and because of their JC titers, you've you've switched them after a year. Switching DMT seems to be a real dark art. What is yeah, it is. What no. is this witchcraft that you do? Oh, so yeah, I went to bring back my, bring back my little um, aid memoir, which is on my wall in my office. Um, so it is a dark art, and nobody really knows the right. There is no kind of there's no published evidence. There's very little. Um, written about switching there was an article so there was an article about switching from ironically from Thai Sabri to Alimtuzumab um, because that's a kind of tricky switch because you want to give generally you're swapping from <clears throat> Thai Sabri because of the JC risk and the risk of PML what you don't want to give someone with asymptomatic kind of preclinical um, PML is you don't want to give them something that's going to massively suppress their immune system 
because that could be quite catastrophic. So um, you want to give them some kind of washout or period where you can be fairly sure they haven't got PML. Um, so what we did for a little while was, uh, this is a kind of, well, it's not an anecdote, it's been written up, but we gave Fingolimod as a bridging agent. So um, Tysabri short washout of about six weeks. So we know Tysabri lasts for six weeks. So short washout of six weeks, start Fingolimod. We'd give <clears throat> three to four months of Fingolimod, then scan for PML. Um, some people were doing lumbar punctures for JC and then giving Alam Tuzumab. We were, so we, I wrote up a, a case as part of a, a, I think a nine patient case series from across, I think it was European, um, of, a, of people that actually then relapsed quite catastrophically post Alam Tuzumab in that situation. The theory being is that and so switching, you have to think about how the drugs works and the mechanism of action. So fingolimod sequesters lymphocytes in the in the lymph nodes, and and so they don't they're not available to cross the blood brain barrier and cause um cause MS lesions or activity. What alemtuzumab does is identify circulating lymphocytes and destroys them effectively but if they're sequestered in the lymph nodes then they're not there to be destroyed by the alemtuzumab so the theory is you give the alemtuzumab but then the kind of ms active lymphocytes then kind of come out of hiding re-emerge re rump off into the cns and cause merry havoc um so yeah that we've i've had that once and that's been and i think martin had a case in newcastle and there have been very other cases across the country so that turned out not to be such a great idea after all um, and it also makes us very cautious about switching from fingolimod to alemtuzumab without giving a decent washout and making sure that they've got uh, so their lymphocyte count is up to up to normal and that can take time and of course the worry is with both tysabri and fingolimod is if you give them too much of a break without treatment that they will have a rebound activity and relapse so it is a really tricky situation the switch from tysabri to oclizumab is a bit simpler um, and what we've done is uh, just made a switch from Tysabri and then the next, give them six weeks and then them accepting that there is probably some risk of carryover PML. But if you're fairly vigilant and do the MRI scan just before giving the oclizumab, then you're managing that risk. And that's what we kind of decided to do in Newcastle. So that's what we do, but it, it is an evidence-free zone. I know we are trying to kind of um, come up with protocols. And the trouble is every time you come up with an idea or an algorithm or protocol is that a new drug comes available that hasn't been considered and therefore throws it out of the water. So, I mean, there's the other perennial problem area. that five neurologists in a room will have seven opinions. and Absolutely. And you ask me, I'll have the same, you know, different opinion on two different days. Um, so there is, uh, I kind of attended part of the EAN virtually recently um, because the other thing is what you do, what you do when a drug like alemtuzumab fails because it doesn't work for everybody and what you do if patients have breakthrough activity on alemtuzumab. Um, and so there are a couple of papers there looking at the use of oclizumab in those patients and um, that seems to be well tolerated but it's still quite early days. Um, 
so I, I think it's hard because you're kind of messing around with people's immune systems quite significantly um with a lot of the new drugs we don't have long long-term data about the risk of cancers and um long-term infections so it's yeah it's it's we're dealing with a lot of unknown unknowns as it were frontier medicine in a lot of ways isn't it kind of although yeah yeah we are but i think also in ms we're kind of way behind people like the rheumatologists who use all these drugs in combination and sequencing and you know you could argue that actually should we be using you know using a drug and then and then you know adding for a while and then adding something else in i think that will come but it'll just take us another 10 or 15 years when we get used to being immunologists yeah exactly mm. yeah and i think We've spoken before, haven't we, that MS is not all sexy DMODs? Of course not, no. And the majority of my clinic is far from it. Um, and symptom management, I think, is considered the, the, the poor cousin of, of, of MS management. And it's so important. And it's... It is. And I think, I guess, I, I don't think I'm... Unique, but I guess you'll see some some kind of big MS centres. The, the you know will have a DMT clinic, and patients come just to decide whether they should be on a DMT. And then I guess if they decided not to, then away you go again. And that's certainly not the model that we have in Sunderland, and I don't think is in the rest of the region. So, yeah, I I think symptom management is really really important. Um, and and even the patients who are you know young and on DMT still have symptoms so I and bladder and bowel is probably the biggest one that I deal with uh, or I probably don't deal with very well but I certainly ask about um, so bladder and bowel symptoms pain of course spasticity spasticity management is is, is a big one and difficult at the moment because I can't examine examine anybody's legs um, to see if they've got spasticity or not um, memory disturbance cognitive impairment mobility issues um, depression anxiety sexual dysfunction um, you know you name it i think this is why ms is so, so it can be difficult for people to diagnose this because you know any symptom you can imagine probably does come into it and and it's hard and, and i think that the frustrating thing is that there's you know whilst there's lots of you know like you say sexy advance in kind of dmts there's very little in the way of symptom management um i suppose the only thing that's happened recently which is encouraging is the recent approval for sativex for the um medical cannabinoid for multiple sclerosis so that was licensed many years ago but never approved by nice for treatment but it has recently been so um and so I've got a mixture of patients that have been beating my door down for it, probably half of which aren't actually suitable. Um, but then another lot of patients that you kind of think, you know, they've been through baclofen, they've had, you know, they've been baclofen, gabapentin, which they haven't tolerated, pregabalin, which they haven't really tolerated, clonazepam, um, physio, and, you know, so Sativex, I think whilst, you know, it's not going to be a cure and it's not going to be the panacea i hope will offer some relief for some of those patients so that's that's encouraging um what are your feelings on tizanidine for the patients that don't improve on baclofen because i've used it a handful of times and obviously the monitoring is difficult a couple of people have done yeah. quite well on it 
Mm. I've got, like, again, a handful. I've got one patient I spoke to, I think, last week who was on it. And I think I think a GP won't prescribe it without me seeing her every year. So um, I, I don't have a huge amount of patients on it, I have to say. But like you say, it can be useful, you know, where baclofen hasn't been or where baclofen hasn't been tolerated. Um, I have to say I'm very lucky from, and I guess one of the, the, good, the good things about working in Sundance, I my office is next door to our neuro rehab consultant's office so we've got in-house neuro rehab um both outpatient and inpatient so um i often i'll be honest i sometimes pass some of the difficult spasticity uh, well i'll certainly ask him about it i don't pass it all on to him but um he certainly helps me out with it um, and in the in the in the what i always find really difficult the 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 young women who've had a couple of disabling relapses and have done quite well in terms of relapse management on a DMT and just have really difficult problems with, you know, with their waterworks, they have problems with constipation. It's so hard and they're very young. And that it leads is hard, to the no question. Yeah. And I think, I think sometimes it does just take asking somebody about it because I think sometimes they probably just, a lot of people just live with it. But actually, if you say, well, you know, do you go because you say, have you got any problems with bladder or bowel? And I mean, sometimes when they say no, I let it go. But sometimes I go by that. I mean, do you go to the loo more often or do you have to rush to go to the toilet? You know, are you not going places because you're worried about needing because you'll often say, oh, yeah, well, but I do make sure that as soon as I go anywhere, I know exactly where the toilet is and I won't go to that place or I'll, you know, they'll deliberately dehydrate themselves to stop, you know stop kind of accidents and sleep disturbance that wasn't something we mentioned but when you, if you have to get up two or three times in the night to pass urine then um you know that's going to disturb your sleep and that kind of adds to daytime fatigue so i think yeah bladder and bowel and it's, sometimes it's as easy as sorting out somebody's constipation because constipation can lead to a, a more unstable bladder so sometimes just a simple conversation about well have you tried you know perhaps just a gentle regular laxative because that might help your water works and in turn if that might help your spasticity um so it's often a vicious cycle and sorting out one symptom can actually help sort out a lot of them um but i also i talk to people about things like intermittent self-crisis session quite early and i refer people to our continence team to kind of manage manage it and you know teach them it but and people often look at me going you're mad particularly the men actually go i you know there's no way i'm doing that absolutely no way i'm not sticking a tube up there um but but once you actually say okay fine well and often it takes two or three years to persuade them that actually they should give it a go and then they do and then they're like oh dr petherem i'm sleeping i can go out now you know you know it's it's transformed my life and the same with bowel irrigation we have a lot lot of patients young patients as well use bowel irrigation self-bowel irrigation systems and you know it means they don't have fecal incontinence is something we don't talk about sorry i you know it's nine o'clock we can start talking about poo right um all day every day yeah exactly um if you've got animals or um children you can talk about poo whenever can't you um yeah so people it's fecal incontinence is is more common than i think is probably recognized um and that's really horrible isn't it and i think that can be sometimes managed with either laxatives or a bowel irrigation system bowel irrigation i've when i did ms clinics when i was training 
I always thought, why, why don't we use this in Parkinson's? Because we obviously have some very resistant mm-hmm. constipation. Um, you know, people's medication doesn't kick in because of their constipation, because of their gastric stasis. And I don't know why we don't use it in that group of patients. I really don't. I think I think it's I think you have to be fairly dexterous mm. so that might um so obviously but you can get you know district nurses will come in and do it you can teach family members to do it so yeah it's a good yeah you can take it back to your Parkinson's I will um, file that away so. under something to annoy <laughs> the district nurses with yeah exactly um we did get a lot of questions about um research development new drugs and I, I can see it's late and my cat is looking at me because he wants feeding again for dinner number three um but it would be nice if we could just touch on it we i think we both were a little bit bummed that no one asked any questions about primary progressive ms or secondary progressive ms and and i think that's really important to cover and i think we would love to have yeah. you back to do a dedicated session to do it justice. Um, So that's on the back burner, everybody. But uh, yeah, do you, do you want to just give us the, the lowdown in, in Professor Petherham's opinion? (laughs) Stuff that's coming out, stuff that's on the horizon, things that you're excited about, things that you are disappointed by, maybe just. Yeah. So about in MS in general or pro- progressive disease in particular? Oh, I, I know what we're um, both thinking, but, but yeah, in, in general, but, but yeah. Okay. So I guess the disappointing thing recently is a recent no from NICE about Symponimod. Um, Symponimod was, has been licensed for treatment in um, secondary progressive MS. So active secondary progressive MS. So, um, and, and this is actually, I'll just very quickly say, I, when, when I was a junior, I didn't really understand how drugs were licensed or approved. I, didn't, I, I knew nothing about that. I don't think anybody teaches you about drugs and, and what we're allowed to prescribe. So in MS, you'll have a drug trial, which will show whether a drug works or not. Then the drug company will apply to, for it to be licensed in the, in the UK and Europe. That's by the European Medicines Agency, which until Brexit was in London, now it's somewhere in Europe. Um, and then, so they'll give the drug a license. So then the drug is licensed for use in a particular patient group. And then NICE will decide. So in the UK, or it's probably, I think it's just England, actually. In England, NICE will decide whether we can prescribe that drug and whether it's reimbursed. And that's important because these drugs are expensive. They're funded by NHS England. And if they're not reimbursed, then your trust will end up paying for it and you will definitely be chucked out of your trust. Um but so, so Siponimod was has been licensed for active secondary progressive MS, but NICE have said no. So that's disappointing. Um, and I think that often happens though, so it's not uncommon for NICE to say no initially, and then the company go back and do some clever funds, usually end up offering it at a slightly cheaper price, and then it sometimes is um, given a license. But... Um, I, I honestly don't know whether that will be the case in Siponimod. Um, Siponimod was, you know, it was going to be the only, well, the first drug to be licensed and it, well, approved for secondary progressive MS. So that's patients that, um, I have a slight problem with phenotyping MS. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I think, I think these, these phenotypes and definitions have been designed in order that these drugs can be, approved to make 
the kind of condition uncommon enough. Um, if you just license a drug for MS, you know, that everybody can be eligible for because all of these drugs reduce relapses rates. Most of the drugs reduce brain atrophy to a certain extent. Most of them reduce, um, if you look at the trials, they actually do reduce uh, progression to a certain, to greater or lesser degree. Um, and I suppose whilst Siponamod was encouraging, it was it is only licensed for people with evidence of activity, either in the form of relapses radiological activity. Um, what I was quite excited about the use of it for was patients who are on a disease modifying therapy and who probably are progressing. I I'm, don't tell them, I don't, I don't then say you pro, you've got secondary progressive MS in the notes because then according to licenses I would have to then stop that medication. Um, so I keep the phenotypes and definitions fairly loose and I don't think I'm alone in doing that. Um, but this way, this would allow us to, I think it would also stop the stigmatization of secondary progressive MS. Nobody wants to be transitioned from prior, from relapsing, remitting to secondary progressive MS because it does appear to shut lots of doors. And I think, I think we should really, I think the time for that is over. And I think, but you know, I'm not in charge of the NHS budget, which is probably just as well because I blow it all on drugs for these patients. <laughs> um, uh, but so Suponamod, yeah, it's, it, it, it is a shame. I think there was some quite interesting data in um, in terms of reducing atrophy, perhaps even encouraging remyelination, so encouraging um, recovery from relapses. So uh, watch this space; it might still might still um, come onto the market. Um, other things. There's so simvastatin. There's there were there's been encouraging phase two trials into simvastatin for for secondary progressive MS, and that's currently in a phase three STAT two trial, um, which is a multi-center trial and for simvastatin. So you know that is, I don't think it's going to be miraculous, but I think it's going to offer something. I think that's quite uh, interesting because I did some MS. So the trial is called MS STAT, and I did some yeah. work on MS STAT and PD STAT. Oh, um, right. And there was a there was promise in that as well. So I think yeah, you know, so, reducing your cardiovascular risk is good for any neurological yeah. brain condition. Clearly, so yeah, and I think there's felt to be some neuroprotect. I won't pretend to understand the bio, you know, the <clears throat> the pathophysiology, but it's um, some neuroprotective effect as well. Uh, so that so that's that's an ongoing study for secondary progressive MS. There is um, there's a new molecule called. I've, I've had to write this down because I always say it wrong. Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitor, or BTK for short. Is that the? Um, that's a, a is that a leukemia? So with, yes, I think it has yeah. been used in that. So it's a it's a drug. Um, so BTK regulates kind of B cell functions and cytokine release, and so um, it's an oral drug which in blocks B cell activation, which we think is quite which they think is important in MS. Uh, so there's a there was a, a positive phase two trial, which was reported I think in a year or two ago, uh, and that's going to be phase three this year. So that's um, recruiting this year. So that's a possibility. There are lots. Of, so I did a I did a search actually because I knew you were going to ask me about this, um, and. There, I, when I went on to clinicaldove.com, there are 2,152 MS studies currently. Oh. 
Okay. Not all interventional studies. Go through them one by one. Not all interventional. (laughs) You know, I got abandoned. I thought I can't do this anymore. (laughs) Um, But there, you know, so a lot of the drugs are kind of slightly reinventing the wheel. So there's um, ofatumumab, which is another anti-CD20 molecule that probably will um, be licensed and approved subcut rather than intravenous. So it has advantages into people coming into hospital. Um, and there's another, a bit, they've all got funny names. Do you live due to the imab? Another imab, again, anti-CD20. And then I like this one, so I hadn't heard of this one. Elazunumab, which is a MAB against repulsive guidance molecule A. Wow, that sounds very Doctor Who. It does, doesn't it? Hmm. So, but that that might be, uh, that's kind of, I think, more about um, recovery. So that might be a good one for, encouraging one for progressive MS. So I think there's loads and loads of research, uh, but we don't have... We don't have the magic, uh, you know, we don't have the magic bullet yet. You have quite a lot of spells, though. Um, quite a lot of spells available in MS, I think. have spells. I think what's frustrating and I think what frustrates me and what frustrates my patients is that, you know, we can't repair the damage that's already been done. Um, and it's that damage which comes back to kind of, haunt people later on I think so so I think if anybody if you can take away anything from today my aim in terms of treatment of MS is to treat it early and to treat it you know to treat it well to escalate quickly you do want to prevent that damage being done early in the disease and there is evidence to support that that is an appropriate um, course of action that's great thank you so yeah I think we'll stay away from progressive forms of ms for the podcast i'm doing the inverted commas so dr petherham doesn't come around and sock me one um and yeah I th- no it's all right i I've, I've had arguments with kind of reps about it um but i think mainly because probably- i just like arguing with drug reps yeah that's it's i think they, they they quite like they quite spoil for a bit of a tiff anyway don't they i think that's why they do what oh, they yeah. do definitely so i i think we'll probably sort of round it off there that's been fantastic thank you so much um we always end the podcast by asking our esteemed guests a more generic question which is if you were to give advice to the newly minted dr petherham f1 or or house officer in where were you where were you you were in bristol in brizzle so if you were to go to brizzle the newly minted MBBS or other medical degrees are available and you were going to give some some life advice either general life advice or how to deal with a career in medicine or maybe about MS specifically what advice would you give her oh that's a good one um because I was gonna I was thinking about my kind of early I I think so I think I was quite a confident I think you go through stages in your career, don't you? You can start quite confident when you don't know what you don't know. So you, you kind of, and then as it becomes very obvious that you don't know anything, you then become less confident. And then then you realise that it doesn't matter that you don't know everything. And so I guess my advice would be to kind of life the journey and, and actually, 
that everybody's learning all the time and that it's okay not to know everything. You're never going to know everything. I, I, you know, I'm learning all the time Uh, and to be aware that those people that think that appear to know everything don't. Um, And I remember coming across particularly surgical registrars who had certain or SHOs actually more, more SHOs who had difficult, um, demeanors perhaps on when you phone them for an opinion and and I realize now that comes from actually their lack of confidence and their lack of knowledge so acknowledging that we're all learning and it's okay to ask that you should keep asking you should keep learning Um, and but and also perhaps if I went back to my early early stage I would probably say knowing now where I am now I would say you know take that interest in MS and really do a bit more with it Um, I did SSMs in MS in, in, in as medical school but kind of then I wanted to I wanted to make sure that neurology was really what I wanted to do um, you'll probably know that I have a family history of neurology um, so I wanted to be absolutely sure I wasn't doing it for that reason and so I tried lots and lots of other things which I do not regret and I think was absolutely the best thing to do um, so I perhaps wouldn't have changed that but I may have had a bit of more of a sideline into deepening my kind of knowledge about neurology and ms and that showed you had innate innate talent and desire for neurology as opposed to it being genetic which is why i'm not a plumber (laughs) yeah yes i don't think there's any genetics involved particularly in, in this oh that's brilliant thank you so much thank you um i would also probably if i went back to bristol i would have drunk drunk less (laughs) bristol's a great place um i I went for the first time quite recently and it is buzzing what a fantastic place i'm sure you were very well behaved yeah yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) i think my my um my family when my dad used to come and visit he used to be horrified that i knew more about the what does he say you know more about the pubs on white ladies road than you do anything about the kind of anatomy of the brain i was like yeah so. and you said ha 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 father how droll knowing that's not true yes exactly yeah well thank you so much for your time we've gone a bit over an hour but worth, worth every minute and i will hold you to our progressive session because i would enjoy that very much and i think it's very yeah, worthwhile pleasure. and very important so good yeah and i'm yeah we managed without any cat invasions. What ish? Mine's been snoring under my feet. I've no got my children. F- oh, they'll, they'll be there when you open the door. <laughs> yeah, they'll be there going, I want food, I want food. And the dog will be like, ah. Yeah. Thank you very much. It was fun. I enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us on Tease Neuro today. You can find us on teaseneuro.org, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, Dr. Neil Archibald will be speaking to Mr. Sarash of the RVI on neurosurgery.